Welcome home, friends. This is Pastor David, and you are listening to the Community Life Podcast. We pray this message is an encouragement to help build your faith and focus your life toward Jesus and His way. We also hope that this podcast is an open door of invitation for you to come and see what God is up to here at Community Life. So plan a visit. We'd love to meet you in person. Lastly, if this is your church home or you'd like to partner with us financially, you can do so by visiting madeforcommunity.com forward slash give. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome back, everyone. So glad you're here. If you don't know me, my name is David. I wear many hats, but today my favorite hat to wear is uh, I get to introduce your teachers today, your speakers. Um, Last week, we started up a series on love. And all throughout the month of February, we're talking about how God's love, how God defines love. This word agape, which means eternal uh, love that requires nothing in return. It's just this love that God has for us demonstrated by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Love that God says is love. How this love must be the foundation for every other area of our life. And so for the month of February, we're going to be talking about how we build our lives on this love. Because all you need is love. Thank you. Perfect. And so, and so today we're going to be talking about eros. We're going to be talking about relationships and specifically how God wants his love to influence our marriages. And so today I get to introduce to you my favorite couple in the room, Stephen Lynn Johnson. If you want to make your way on up, come on. They're going to be teaching after 45 years of marriage. Um, what God has to say about marriage and what it means for us to live happy, happily ever after. So come on up, guys. Can we just give them a warm welcome? It's such a privilege to be a part of this church family. We moved here. We just felt embraced by you, even through COVID and all of the other things things that have turned around our world in the last year or so. Um, We uh, are going through a series that David mentioned about love. And God is love. And for God so loved. And we are told that uh, we will be recognized as a follower of Christ if we love. So love is really important. Um, Talking today about romantic love is something that many people grow up and it's really what they want. I was doing a survey and I was reading on the internet, 71% of people still have an aspiration of finding someone that they could share their life with. And yet with that, so often things don't work out quite the way that we want. We know that there are people here who are far more qualified than we are. We have a church filled with people who've had very long marriages. We've just had 45 years. And um, the 45 years has been a journey. We are so far from perfect. Um, People, when they stand up, you think, okay, you must be an expert in something, and that's just not true. But we have stuck together through hard times and good times. And what I like to say is each year on this continuum, we're being perfected in love. But for just a minute, what I'd like to do is to go over and have a little talk over here. Um, 
My son and my pastor. Um, David, would you stand for just a second? Um, I am so proud of you. I, I could list a hundred different things that I'm proud of you. I'm proud of how you serve as a pastor. But overwhelmingly, what validates absolutely everything to me is the way that you serve Becca as a loving servant and a husband. And I have watched that so carefully. And I just want to thank you for being real and being authentic. You aren't perfect, just like I'm not, but you're being perfected. And your priority since I've met you has always been Becca. And every message that he shares is validated by this relationship. And if you ever see anything different here, then stop listening to him. It's really true. But I wanted you to know that I love you. Um, you often say that God loves loving you. Dads love loving you. But I'm so proud of you as a husband. Make your sound. And Becca. Stand no, up, please. Oh, gosh. I'm the emotional one. Um, Becca, you're the daughter I always dreamed of. And I love you so much from my heart. I'm so glad that you are part of our family, that God ordained that you two would be together. And from the first moment I met you, even if you guys didn't know that you were the ones for each other, I knew that you were meant for David. You've had such great examples with your parents, the Varners. I can't thank them enough for raising you in the home that they did so that you know how to love my baby son. So thank you very much. Becca, we prayed for you after one minute of David's arrival. <laughs> Lynn went, oh, and I went, Lord, <laughs> have plans for him. That would be sweet. Um, your father, Don Varner, and your mother, Diane Varner, are two of the finest people that I've ever met. And they actually would do a far better job this morning than we could ever do. We love them and they love each other and they love God. And I just want to say the very same thing to you. Um, as a pastor, people are looking to you to follow. Follow them into the love, this agape love that can be expressed in the context of marriage. Okay? Love you. Well, after 45 years, there's a lot of things that we could share, but what we wanted to do is to just share with you five lessons that we've learned. These aren't things that have come from us. These are things that God has taught us, and Lynn is going to begin with the absolute most important one. After a minute, David already talked about agape. If we could go to that side, please. There's an agape slide. 
There might not be. That's just fine if there's not an agape slide. There it is. God's love, the ultimate love. Everything we speak on today has the foundation of agape. Unconditional, not self-seeking, self-sacrificing. Everything that you know about God is the foundation and the author of every other type of love that we know. We're gonna be talking about Eros today. Next slide. That is the expression of love is known as romantic desire and self-satisfaction that stems from the attractiveness of the other. And boy, did I think he was cute when I met him at 15. Woo this quality of love is conditional, though passionate. It's transactional, requiring impulsive chemistry from the other. This is the natural type love that we have. Right? It's not the godly love, it's the natural love that can be really, really great, but we can also mess up really well. 45 years, so let's see what we looked like a couple of years ago. There we are, 1921. A rust tuxedo. How many yeah, people had a rust tuxedo? Anybody? No one? Anybody? Baby Listen, blue? That was another option. That was really popular back then. Do you know that? That was like the raging thing. And now I look, Steve like is squeamish about it. And I think, oh, but it was still okay back then. But I wish it would have been black. I had very little to do with any choice in what the wedding was going to be like. Either my sisters who wanted to help direct it, or Lynn made the choices. I think it was my sister's choice for mm -hmm. the rust. Yeah. I'll yeah. have to have a little talk with them later. Well, I was just 19 when we got married. Steve was 21. We were full of excitement and adventuresome. We were so excited to build our own home, just the two of us. In the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, we got married at minus 20 degrees in Iron Mountain, Michigan in 1977. We were um, very different. You know, at the time I thought we were very similar, but Steve grew up in the city. I grew up way out in the boondocks on a farm. Um, he was an extrovert, that's what drew me to him. I was the shy introvert and I could not believe that he would even look at me, much less pay attention to me. Um, There's no question about that. Steve grew up in a family where there was no end to possibilities. You can be president, Steve, if you want to be. And for me, our family was filled with fear. Even though we were Christian, I was filled with fear all the time. And they would say to me, I can remember my parents saying to me, now don't set your goals too high because you know where you come from. We didn't have perfect examples. Like Steve mentioned, his dad struggled with alcoholism, dying when Steve was 18 years old. And I grew up in a Swedish background where love and touch and communication is scarce. We loved each other, 
but we didn't talk about it very much. I knew my parents loved each other, but there wasn't a whole lot of, hey man, I just love you. Not a whole lot of touching, um, not a whole lot of um, external affection. And so we wanted to set a higher example than that, a higher standard than that, because it was, it was, it was okay, but it wasn't enough for us. Because, point number one, God was our ultimate boss. Um, we had one really big thing in common, and that was Jesus. We wanted to give him our whole hearts and serve him for the rest of our lives. Now, I became a, a Christ follower. I invited Jesus into my heart when I was six years old with my mom by my bed after a Sunday night service. Steve was 16. See the difference again. But he, it was like he had this Macedonian call where Jesus chased him down. He could not not follow Jesus. And, and so here we start, these youngsters who thought they knew a lot, who really knew nothing, but we had Jesus. What does it mean when God is our ultimate boss? It means we love him, we follow him, we submit to him, we walk in his ways, even when we don't feel like it. We are obedient when we don't want to be. So how does, you know, how, how does that work? You know, it's, it's through reading his word. It's knowing what he wants. It's asking the Holy Spirit, oh, change my hard heart today and soften my heart. Don't let me get irritated. All of those things, but God has to be our boss. Um, scripture talks about being unequally yoked. It's kind of a, an, an older um, expression. But when scripture talks about that, it's that two Christians who love Jesus would marry and their whole lives would be surrendered to his call. That Jesus would be the boss. Now, I wish that I could tell you 45 years later that Jesus has always been my boss. I want him to be. But because I live in this Eros-type love, this natural love, this love that still, still is self-seeking, I don't always follow Jesus. And so it's a journey. Marriage is a journey, much like Christianity is, where we uh, where God reveals something to us and then we're obedient and then he reveals more to us and we're obedient that's the ultimate boss Steve has been a pastor since he was 20 years old and you've done 500 weddings something like, something that. like that with all of those weddings we did a lot of it together though didn't we with all of those weddings, there was counseling. And not quite in the beginning, but when I felt like God had something for me to say to the couples, I would join. Steve and I have always been a team in everything we've done, whether in ministry or him in my classroom as a teacher. Um, but with that, 
um, we have gained so much that it was so fun that Steve was able to write this book not too long ago. It's called Happily Ever After. And isn't that what we all want, right? We want the Disney thing. Wow, live happily ever after, River would say, with the princesses and the prince. <laughs> and the unicorn. And the unicorn, yes. But there's a subtitle. Moving beyond fairy tales to claim the relationship you never thought possible. In our own right, we can't live happily ever after. It's only when Jesus is our boss that we do that. But Lynn, what's contained in that book? This book contains a lot of our bloopers. My bloopers. Um, because you know, we wanna be honest. There's no sense in trying to be someone who you aren't because people find out about it right away. Um, people know when you're authentic. And so we have always spoken from our mistakes um, in humbleness. And I think that's where we've learned the most in our mistakes. I often, well, I'm in scripture every day, but so often God gives me these verses that he just whacks me upside my head when I need it. And in Galatians 5, this is perfect for this marriage talk this morning. It says, there is a constant battle raging between the spirit and the natural flesh that prevents me from doing the good that I want to do. But when I'm led by the spirit, I'm no longer subject to the law. And just a few verses after that, that's why when the Holy Spirit is inside of me, I can live a different life. I have the fruit of the Spirit. You know what they are, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm not trying to do this on my own because I cannot do it on my own. I try to do it the right way, but it's impossible for me, even daily, even daily, to do things the way God wants me to in holiness. Yep, it's a process. When we fully commit to God, when he is our ultimate boss, it changes how we do our time. It changes how we spend our money. It's brought people into our house that were unexpected, that have lived with us. It, it changed that we moved when I was completely content in a city that I thought I would die in. I was hoping I would die in my classroom. Nope, God had other plans. But when God is boss, when the agape says to you, this is how you live, this is how all other relationships come off of my love for you. That is what you do. God is boss. And as Lynn mentioned, that's why it's important to find someone who has an equal commitment to Christ that you have, because otherwise it's just gonna be really, really hard. And my counsel to younger couples would always be, um, Make sure that it's authentic, that that person isn't 
saying the right things to make you think that they are as committed as you are. Watch their behavior. Um, Eros love is a lot of fun. It's self-satisfying, right? According to the definition. And when couples get married based upon that, oftentimes they run into a lot of different problems. I, I thought I would just tell one quick story. Uh, there was one couple that Lynn and I, uh, well, I officiated at, and Lynn and I did a lot of counseling with. And we, um, they were struggling in a number of different areas, but, but they love Christ. But, you know, when you're dealing with striving for agape love and eros love is so powerful, uh, sometimes you can get your priorities a little mixed up. And uh, they um, had their rehearsal wedding. Then we officiated at the wedding. We wished them off. And at midnight, after the wedding, they had driven five hours. They fought the whole time. And so they called us and they said, could we please come back tomorrow? <laughs> we need to talk. And so they came back and we always shared every mistake that we ever made. Intimate problems, every, every problem that you can imagine with the hope that they would develop enough trust that if they had a problem, they could come back and talk to us. Um, one of the problems that every couple is going to struggle with is conflict. And so the next slide, if you could look at it, I want to talk to you about how you can empower change in your relationship if there's a problem. In conflict, if you take the greater responsibility, if, uh, excuse me, in conflict, choose to take the greater responsibility. If you don't take responsibility, you've given up the power to influence. There are so many people who find it so hard. Does anybody remember Happy Days and the Fonz, you know, the cool guy with the motorcycle? And he just could not say I was wrong. Do you remember that? There are so many people who struggle even when they know absolutely they could have done better to say that they were wrong. And basically, when you say, I had no responsibility here, you're standing up and saying, I also have no influence here. So if there is a problem in a relationship and I choose to take great ownership of that problem, it also empowers me to have great influence in its solution. But when on both sides, I don't have any responsibility here, it's him. I don't have any responsibility, it's her. One of the practical things that we've learned from scripture and in our lives is that if we come to an impasse, if we sit down and contemplate how I could have done it better, and I choose to take the majority of the problems, because men are supposed to play a special role of creating emotional harmony within a marriage. It is just so very important. And so I want to be wrong because I love her so much, I want her to be right all the time. Yay! <laughs> that sounds good, but 
then she doesn't have any power to change whatever the problem might be. And so I thought I would share with you just a, a couple of things. Um, and this isn't speaking about me, just so you know. No, no. I'm smarter than that. In that book, there's not one. You would think Lynn was a saint, and she is, by reading that book. All of them are the dumbest things I've ever done. Um, Robert Thomas just read the book, and uh, he, he knows all of the silly things that I have done in the process of trying to learn to be a husband. But there's somebody who had a lot of practice in being a husband. He's the wisest man ever recorded in scripture. He's Solomon. Now Solomon started out really very, very right. And God gave him wisdom that was amazing. And in the book of Proverbs, he shares great wisdom. Now, but one of the problems that he had as his life went along is he decided that one woman just wasn't enough. This man had 700 wives, and then he had 300 concubines on the side. I'll tell you, one woman is plenty. <laughs> no, no. That, I mean, I can give you my complete attention. Oh, yes, that's it. Let me read you some of these passages written by Proverbs, but I'm going to take out the word wife, and I'm going to add spouse, okay? Because I think Proverbs, I mean, I think that Solomon needed to have a little talk with me. Um, it says this in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome spouse. Better to find your man cave. <laughs> That's what he was saying. He goes on, so that was the corner of a roof. The next one is Proverbs 19, 19. Better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging spouse. We live in the desert now. Yes, we, we live uh, up in Santa Clarita, the high desert. In Proverbs 19, verse 13, it says, A foolish child is a father's ruin, and a quarrelsome spouse, remember that I'm changing these words. Solomon had a little bit to learn, and I want you to listen carefully to this one, okay? Because the next one, he magnifies it. So I'm gonna just read this again. Um, uh, I, a foolish child is a father's ruin, and a quarrelsome spouse is like a constant dripping of a leaky roof. Drip. Drip, drip, drip. Well, somebody must have really gotten this guy upset because just um, seven chapters later, in Proverbs 27, verse 15, he said, a quarrelsome spouse is like a dripping, uh, the dripping of a leaky roof, but this time he says, in a rainstorm. So it's not just drip, drip, drip. It's drip, 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 drip. Never ending. And it's true that as he amplifies it, if you are going to quarrel, if you aren't going to get beyond the conflict that you have, if you don't realize that the conflict that you have comes from your sin nature, and God is in the process of refining you. And when Lynn just read the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, 
Who wouldn't want to be married to that individual? That's the transformation that God wants us to have. Now, the only way that that's going to be lived out, if I'm willing to say, when we are at an impasse, I want to serve you by taking the majority or all of the responsibility, because it empowers me to not have to be passive in trying to solve a problem. The scriptures tell us, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The only way that that's ever going to happen is if you are willing to take responsibility and with that have the authority and influence to make things right. Now, has that always happened? Nope. As a matter of fact, one of Lynn's traits, this is the Swedish tradition that she was raised in, if Lynn gets upset with me, or if she thinks I'm upset with her, she usually, this is a tendency, she wants to be by herself. Everybody processes things a little bit differently. If it's in the evening, then she just doesn't sleep all night. And what I would like to do, whatever the issue would be, is just, let's just get over it. And Lynn grew up, she said, feeling um, more shy and insecure, struggling with the whole idea that she is wrong or that she's failed is a deep emotional issue for her. She's not happy with the concept of being perfected. She has this weird Swedish need to be perfect. And so she's doing this not out of disobedience with God. But it's something that we've worked on for 45 years. Might be something we work on for the next 45. Probably. But um, I just think that if rather than pointing fingers, we opened our hearts, I really believe that we would be more successful. Conflict is normal because we're different. A man is different than a woman. A farm girl is different than, a, it's hard to call Green Bay a city <laughs> when we're living in Los Angeles, but um, it's different. Um, people from different backgrounds, it's just, it, we, we tend to think in the midst of Eros because we're both having this self-satisfied love going on that we must be so much alike. But you, when you put the lens of agape over the top of it, it causes us to see our responsibilities different. So there are some people who I am convinced that they have actually become experts and rather enjoy the sparring of arguing. That's no fun. So God is the boss. The second thing is really take responsibility. Don't push that off. Because if you don't, you have to be passive waiting for things to somehow clear up. And they're never going to clear up right. There's always going to be this undertow of something wrong. I've really appreciated Steve doing this for me. Um, if I have a hard heart, and I do sometimes, and he comes to me and he says, I will take responsibility for what has happened 
in our relationship right now. Will you forgive me? Um, my heart breaks. I can't stay hard after that. Have you ever laid next to someone, your backs next to each other, not your fronts, your backs, knowing that there was a conflict within you and you just lay there? It's dark, it's quiet. I know he's not asleep. I know I'm not asleep. And, and yet that impasse is there. You have been wonderful, thank you, because I am that person who wants to be perfect. I mean, it's craziness because I know I'm not, but it's very hard for me to take the ownership that Steve does, and so he sets a perfect example for me. That's number two. Number three, quickly, is that we need to learn to say no in order to say yes. We need to know what our priorities are. You know, it seems like as, as little kids, one of the first words they learn is no. No one teaches them. No, no. I can remember that with my kids, our grandkids. I mean, sure that I did it, and I wasn't probably a little kid. I was probably older. But we learn to say that. Um, and, and usually it's in a disrespectful or, you know, kind of like a sassy way, and we don't like that. But there is a time to say no. There's a time to say no in order to say yes. For me, the priorities that I feel like God has given me is God is my ultimate boss, but Steve comes next. He has to have my high reverence, my submission to him, just like I submit to God. And if agape is true in my life, I will be able to do that. I will submit to him next, no matter what's going on in my life. Um, time was always an issue for us. Um, you know, priorities, and that's the subtitle there, priorities are only important when there's a shortage. In our marriage, there was a shortage of time. Steve was pastoring full-time. He would be gone two or three days during the week working with church plants around America with the Baptist General Conference. I worked full-time, and we had two kids. And then we did all the church things. And then you throw in 500 weddings and rehearsals and all of those things. So time was really hard for us to capture. But we knew that we couldn't be ships passing in the night. You can't develop intimacy that way. You can't develop good communication that way. No one knows what the other is doing. Um, and so um, one thing that I did in order to uh, bring more time into our life, because when I was teaching full-time, Steve would often, when he was around, he would cook the dinner for us because I would get home later than he would. But what I chose to do is I chose to go half-time as a teacher. That was really hard for me because I hold my responsibilities very tightly. And I felt like no one else could teach my class like I could. Um, and you think, oh, half-time, that's great. But actually, going Monday, Tuesday, 
and Wednesday morning, and then preparing your partner to take the rest of the week. Communicating with teachers and your students and faculty and, and you know, just that whole gamut of what's in the school district, it was so difficult. Not only was I losing half of that, but I had to prepare doubly. But I chose to do that because I felt it was important for our relationship. We got to see each other a lot more. We got to do more activities together, just being with one another, having meals with one another, um, knowing what was on your mind. Whereas before, it was a rat race just trying to get to the next thing. It reminds me of the book of Revelation, where Jesus talks to the Ephesus church. And they had been uh, really pleasing to God for a time. And then they forgot their first love. And Jesus says, repent and do what you did before. I think you can really liken this to marriage. What did I do before? Steve was the most important thing to me. Nothing else mattered except him. I wrote him every day when we were dating. We had phone calls, right? When we were first married, I tried to make his, his uh, favorite food, leave notes. I can remember when, he would when we were in college, even though we couldn't afford it, he would leave me a snicker bar in my, in my mailbox at, at college. We were the ultimate priority for each other. And I have to go back and remember, what did I do in the beginning? What am I doing now? Um, Jesus says, remember your first love. The right nows matter. My right now matters with him because no one is guaranteed tomorrow. Sitting down, asking your spouse, are you getting enough of me? Are you lonely? Lonely people make mistakes. And so communicating in such a way that they know, that Steve knows, that I put him on top of any other person or thing besides God being my ultimate boss. That's what I want him to know. I'm a lucky man. <laughs> and all of these are things we've grown to learn from Scripture and that the Holy Spirit has worked in our heart. Having Lynn be, she was nominated as Teacher of the Year the first year she taught. She loved investing in these students. And having her say, I'm willing to go part-time so that our schedules would match up better. Being a teacher Monday through Friday, pastors are really busy every weekend. And then I was out of town a couple of days a week. Um, it was kind of a crazy life. David, I hope that we haven't like really caused you to have deep emotional problems. <laughs> Let's move on though. Um, it's clear that uh, Lynn and I have learned that you value each other in a relationship. And if you don't, then terrible things can happen because you don't protect that which you 
don't value. So the, the fourth point was create boundaries to protect your marriage from an affair. And an affair doesn't necessarily even mean sexual. All of a sudden, a hobby of someone's could take over their life. And we knew of one couple where they got married and he loved the outdoors. And basically he was hunting or fishing nonstop after he got done working. He had an affair with this desire to be out in the woods. So there's a lot of different things and that falls partly under what Lynn was talking about with priorities. But an untended marriage is really likely to become vulnerable. Um, if you realize that your spouse is being looked at by other people, because today it's common for people to have affairs. People don't really even think about it. And if you don't watch it, then you're gonna run into a big problem. Uh, Robert, would you do me a favor? Could you give me the password to your savings account? Now, why would he protect that? Because it's valuable. Rome, let's see, what could I ask from you, right? He's like a son to me. Wonderful man. We, we protect the things that are valuable. Uh, where's your iPhone or your smartphone? That has become more important to people than their wallets. Have you ever had that shocking feeling like, where did I leave my phone? Most of us are very cognizant of that. So we watch over it very, very carefully and we protect it. Um, and so when you realize that it's easy to protect the things that you value, but let's just say that we're straying a little bit in the passion and commitment that we have to our spouse, we might not even notice that they might be lonely. And lonely people make really poor choices. A lonely person will befriend a person. And befriending them, they talk and they have fun together. And all of a sudden, something that was never planned happens. I don't believe that most people who've had an affair ever expected that to happen. That's why you have to be proactive rather than reactive. That's just very, very important. Let me just share with you um, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife or a husband finds what is good, okay? Better than a smartphone, better than a wallet, better than that password, Robert. I know so many people who would trade almost everything they have for what their vision of the love of their life would be. What they don't realize is there isn't such a thing. You have to build that. It's perfected over years. It's not perfect. There's over 1,500 websites or apps to have you sign up to try to find that perfect someone today. 1,500, I had no idea. And then there's this specialty little arrangement where you can hire a matchmaker. I have a dear friend, a wonderful man, 
Uh, his first wife got involved with drugs and ran off from the family, and he raised his kids. He's just a wonderful, wonderful man. I respect him deeply. He ended up doing well in his job. Uh, he was leading a very large company and met someone who was very much in love with his wallet. And she decided that they needed to have a house a thousand miles away as a vacation spot. And she stayed there for the next 10 years. And this man, he's like a brother to, to Len and me. We just love him. And he just said, you know, I wish I could find someone. He tried Christian singles and he tried a bunch of different things. And then finally he went and spent a lot of money to have somebody matchmake. And I can remember him flying to a place to meet somebody and we would be praying. And the matchmaker wasn't matchmaking very well. He would have traded everything that he had to have had what, what we were building, not what we have, but what we're building towards. And so what we have, sometimes we don't consider precious enough or valuable enough. He who finds a wife finds what's good. And I found something very good. In Genesis chapter 2, God had created many things. And then he looked at man and he said, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> Just not that impressed. And the first time that God said things were very good was after he created Eve. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to be married. The Apostle Paul encouraged people not to be married. And so, but if you're married, understand that if you're not happy now, maybe you should look at the point, previous point that I talked about, taking responsibility and change, or that God is the boss, whatever it would be, but there are millions of people in the United States that are hoping for something that you at least have the opportunity to build. It's just so important that we look at life that way and we understand. Um, when it comes to um, a relationship and having it uh, be vulnerable, in Matthew, he says, this is on the Sermon on the Mount, if you've heard, you've heard me say uh, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. Um, all of us have done that. I don't know if you remember Jimmy Carter, and he was interviewed in a magazine, and they asked, have you ever committed adultery? And he said, in his heart, and they, didn't, they had no concept of how you deal with that. But what God wants us to do is to purify our life, to have eyes only for your spouse. And I'm so thankful that I have never, since we've been married, been attracted to another person. God has just protected me. And one of the ways that he protected me was by giving me a deep convictions that I needed to create boundaries in my life. People without boundaries put themselves at great risk. It was in 1990 that the Baptist General Conference, which this church is a part of, it's now called Converge Worldwide, 